I'm Aaron Weintraub, and this is Inside Kurdistan. Dr. Nasreen Barwari has one of those backgrounds that's kind of a nightmare for an interview because there's too much recent history in Iraq and KRI that she's been directly involved with to focus on one particular thing in a conversation. To summarize, not even entirely, Dr. Barwari was born in Baghdad and was imprisoned with her family at a young age in 1981 before becoming a displaced person in Turkey 10 years later during the 1991 Gulf War. Uh, She went on to serve with the IOM, the International Organization for Migration, and then she became the first Iraqi staff member uh, to head a UN field office in Dehuk with uh, UN Habitat. Afterwards, she was appointed Minister of Reconstruction and Development in the Kurdistan regional government in the late 90s. And then in 2003, she served as the Minister of Municipalities and Public Works, the only woman to serve in federal Iraq's interim government following the fall of Saddam Hussein's regime. She served for three terms, uh, surviving multiple assassination attempts in the process. Since 2006, she has left public service to go on to teaching in planning and development, as well as uh, conducting community-based research and advising regional and local government organizations. And she also has obtained a master's in public administration at Harvard's Kennedy School and a PhD in political science with a focus on development planning at Dortmund University. When I met Dr. Barwari, she was giving a talk at the American University in Kurdistan in Dehuk. And much of our conversation is about her Q&A with students and alumni at the university. Uh, We did, of course, talk about her background with, I would say, an emphasis concerning her role in the federal Iraqi interim government. But I focused on something different with her because I'm always interested in the new generation here expressing anxieties and concerns and perspectives uh, to older, more established leaders. Uh, And Dr. Barwari was in office during a key moment of Iraqi history when the problems surrounding existing as occurred in this country transformed from uh, issues regarding survival to issues surrounding success and development. And those are two very different sets of concerns. And she embodies and has had to address both of these concerns uh, with both her career and her personal life. So I'll leave the rest to our conversation, uh, which took place in the AUK library. So with all that, here's what we talked about. I think the best place for us to start, actually, is um, talking about some of the questions you got today. The impression I get uh, whenever I go to a seminar like this, uh, when there's a a leader from the the past generation of Kurdistan and Iraq speaking to the current generation, uh, the impression that I get is that Whenever I come uh, uh, to a university, or, or whenever I whenever I listen to like kids of this generation, I think that um, they listen to past leaders and their struggles, but they don't always necessarily internalize it because they view the issues that they're dealing with as completely separate from yours. So, does this generation frustrate you in that sense? It does. Yeah. It does because it looks like uh, sometimes. They don't care, mm. and sometimes they sound. I mean, there are different, of course, different personalities, different character. This is a big society with diverse um, components who have different experiences. So we cannot generalize. Mm-hmm. Like I'm even reluctant in generalizing. That's why I'm going to give you my impression about this generation. And again, it's. Uh, 
not very well informed, but it's my like from my contact and from because I teach. I feel like they are in a rush to get to where they want, and this is my struggle. It took a lot of time for me. It mm -hmm. sounded as I. I, I speak about my life as if it is short, but we're talking about 30, 33 years of struggle. And it started even when I was, un, before being graduated, it started when I was 14, when I was a pr uh, political prisoner. Mm. So um, my struggle that they are uh, rushing things without allowing time to um, season them, to experience things, um, so that's one reason of frustration. Um, second, I lived through hardship and not having many things. And I helped a lot of people under hardship. Mm. So something about this generation, I don't think they realize how privileged they are, mm. some of them. But even like we do have, of course, people who are disadvantages. Um, economically are at the lower level. But when I talk about the time I grew up, uh, my own um, struggle, mm -hmm. uh, having to have clothes once a year, not every time I wish, wearing the same things for school as a uniform. I know it was systematic, it was the, the, the systematic structure at the, that all students wear, but then people will change their uniforms and I would wear only one uniform. Uh, that uh, humble beginning did not discourage me from uh, the vision I had, you know, in trying to make an impact, make a difference in the society. They, uh, my family comes from a very public-oriented family. They like to do good, mm -hmm. you know, and I got that from there. Okay. So the first objection, objective was to try to do something, but also, of course, I graduated from university I'm I'm expected to earn money to support my family so but I, I struggled a lot I worked a lot I wasn't um, comfortable financially until later in life I have after I've worked a lot and did mul multiple jobs even now I'm, I'm, I'm a former minister but mm. people don't realize I get very low salary as a retirement. I work extra jobs so that I can sustain my lifestyle to be able to support others. Mm -hmm. So people don't realize that it is not uh, as rosy as it looks and it's a struggle to uh, achieve what you like mm -hmm. financially. So again, I don't want to generalize about this uh, generation. I think this generation looks passive a little bit for me sometimes. I, th I wish they were more aggressive. I wish they were more pushy mm -hmm. because they have the tools, they have the uh, at least capacity. They, there are so many venues to speak up. Uh, you know, in my time, it was only one channel and uh, there was no role for media and there was no point um, of criticizing. You could be killed. I know you may come back and challenge me or audience who are listening to us and they say, but people could be killed for saying something. I would say, okay, I could be, I could have been killed throughout my life several mm -hmm. times. There were four direct attempts, but I was in danger of being assassinated, killed hundreds of times. You have to be smart in navigating your uh, way in trying as much as you can to give your message, to 
mobilize. The point is not only to speak and criticize. That's what I like to challenge, not only the younger generation, but the older, my generation. What are we going to do about it? The issue is not only mentioning this is wrong, that's wrong. Let's do something about it. Mm -hmm. And let's start small and build. And let's build the trust in us so people can trust when we challenge them. I think that, in part I agree with you, that, uh, that in terms of opportunities and the ability to uh, socially mobilize yourself is, is more available than ever. Um, and we can speak, you know, in AUK where the students have already clearly had a leg up, most of them, uh, financially. But in general, I would, I would agree with you that the resources available to most people is more than ever. Uh, I think that cynicism runs deeper here because I think most people, most people in my age, and I, I won't just say for Iraq or Kurdistan, I'll say it for America as well, where I'm from. Um, People, it's not that we want things fast, it's that we feel like we're running out of time. Mm -hmm. I think there's a difference. Yeah. Um, that the solutions that we need and we need them are not coming fast enough. And I think that cynicism is earned somewhat by us looking at the past generation of po political operations and saying that there was too much compromise or there was too much corruption or there was too much yeah, we can focus on sort of the effectiveness of Iraq in the past 20 years, which of course you can speak on. How, what kinds of obstacles that you faced uh, when you were minister in the transitional government and what you felt you achieved and what you felt that you, may, you maybe weren't able to get to that leads now to this generation maybe having such a low voter turnout, for example, or not feeling as though it matters whether they get a formalized education because it's all based on WASTA anyways. Things like that. I would start with something you start up with as a comment on me. Um, I agree totally with this generation. <laughs> uh, time is moving fast and we're not achieving what we could achieve. Yes, that's something I agree with. Uh, I mean, I, I wish things to happen much more faster, but um, I would like to invest more on, I think we have, we have rushed through the decades mm -hmm. since 91, and there were so many things happening that we did not allow this society to really transition in, in, a, in, a, in a way that allows it to, to reflect and learn and, and, and learn from their, like get lessons from their experiences. And again, the push and the pressure on this region, uh, different uh, time, like in terms of politics, security, this has really not give enough time to this community, to this society to uh, grow. But I think this is happening everywhere in the world, you know, the speed mm -hmm. of technology, the speed of knowledge, the, the connectedness. City development. Urbanization, <laughs> yeah. definitely. We'll get into that. Urbanization is a huge problem, and we have serious problems to deal with. Uh, I think not only this generation and the students in this university, the, everybody in the street is not well informed about what's going on mm -hmm. at the government level, at the budget level, at the uh, political level. I think we need more transparency. Mm. I mean, that's That would be my... My, uh, for, for all sectors, by all, by all, like, mm -hmm. because once we have all the information, then we can blame whoever is not willing to, to learn the truth. The problem in this culture that people don't look for the real story. 
they look for easy story, the easy information, the, the sponsored information that comes in. How many people of us who go into social media and actually challenge one of the information that get posted? Mm -hmm. And I mean, the, because there is always more to the story and we all wish, I wish, I wish, being an, an analytical person, I wish that everybody in this community, in this culture can learn how to analyze information. Mm -hmm. Because unfortunately there is a lot of manipulation of information. I get this, uh, a lot of that challenge of nothing is happening in Kurdistan. It's totally failure and, and people believed it. But that's not true. That's not the complete story. Yes, there are. There are much to be desired. But on the other hand, there are so many good things that are happening every day. And, and this is where I, I have a problem with those statements. Like, And it's happening with this. Yes, I know. It's happening within the young generation more than the older generation. Because that's what you started with. You start immediately like comparing. I come from the past speaking to the young but but I'm aware of things that are happening I'm aware because I'm interested you know I'm interested in governance and public management I I meet people I I make surveys I I publish papers so I am maybe have access to information but that's the failure of the government to communicate of course there is a, a gap in communication government of Kurdistan is doing a lot is struggling with a lot and the people of Kurdistan are also struggling with mm -hmm. a lot. The only way to go through this struggle is to work together, not against each other. At all level, at all times, when, when all efforts are combined and when there is collaboration and understanding and, and empathy, the result will be better. Mm -hmm. So I think the problem is on both sides. The government not communicating the message, not reaching out to, uh, so that people know, not transparent to a level, but I think we need all more to know more. And the young generation is also not showing interest in learning the real story and, 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 and going after the real story mm -hmm. or the real information. It's just a very dangerous time with all the social media and, and all the sponsored messages. And um, so it takes an effort to get to the facts. Mm -hmm. We can talk about, for example, the, the, the need to filter out information that's not accurate. And we can look at social media and sponsored messaging as, uh, as an example of that. But I think the more prominent example that people would point to here is political sponsorship. Yes. I mean, uh, this podcast is affiliated with the KDP. We're owned by mm -hmm. Kurdistan TV. There's censorship in every single local or national outlet that exists. True. And I, I can't see a young person looking at any single piece of information here, whether it's journalistic uh, or even academic to a certain extent, and not thinking, okay, so what kind of political affiliation is this information coming from? And why can't I trust it? And that we can start with like talking about taking in knowledge but we can also just talk about the entire system and why would you want to be a person who contributes to that system when you could get your education and go elsewhere what would you say to a person who who, who thinks that way I think today's world of education is a fluid mm. world uh, and I think COVID has taught us that 
now we can get education in different formats and different styles so there is no limitation no obstruction to anybody getting any knowledge they want uh, if you think this knowledge is restricted or it's uh, politicized but nobody is stopping people from getting an online education getting and listening to podcasts of all kind of uh, like topics and from all walks of life um, it, it requires work, you know, mm. that's what I'm saying. Even at my level, younger level, we all need to work harder to, to get the full picture. And, uh, and you know, coming from some uh, research or uh, working in my NGO, uh, dealing with uh, trauma management, uh, studying something about mental health, um, I am a great believer that any person is much more happier when they are closer to their core, to their essence. So the solution for people to migrate and leave, that's not a solution. They will not be happy. I mean, it's not mine to say. It's been proven by psychologists. And there are whole uh, thoughts and, and approaches to, to mental health management that the closer you are to who you are and your essence and your culture, the happier you are and the healthier you are mentally. So I would argue that finding solution outside your region and migrating is not the solution. It, it's because you're not going to be happy. Mm -hmm. It's happy. We are. You're going to happier here. And the struggle that you are struggling with, whether it's economic, whether it's political, uh, my hope that after 30 years of struggle for this day to create a democratic uh, system, I would hope that people could struggle for their opinions in, in, in their home countries, in their cities, because we need to improve our democracy, you know, whether it's not perfect, and it shouldn't be perfect, and no democracy is perfect, it's a work in progress. We should be able to be able to speak up to, to contribute to changes. Even if they don't change now, they can change later. But at least I tried. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, that's my dilemma, you know? Because I think all the famous leaders who, resistance fighters, they maintained their resistance. They just didn't stop at one point and left it. Mm -hmm. If you want a change, if you believe that there is a change needed, then you have to work on it and be strategic, mobilize for it, be effective. Because we all are trying to change in different ways. Even I, being from the same environment that, uh, I mean, obviously my affiliation are very clear and none, I try to change too. I try to influence change in my own affiliated party, but in different ways. Mm -hmm. So there is effort. As long as there is effort and there are people who are listening and there are efforts in communication, I think we are fine. Mm -hmm. uh, to go back to the kinds of compromises that you had to make mm. as, as a minister, I'm curious about where you learned sort of the lines of, uh, of misleadership and leadership. Did you ever practice misleadership on accident? Did you ever have to make compromises uh, that you weren't able to basically see through? I mean, I don't want to look very uh, like positive and optimistic, but during my time, things were so challenging mm. and so bad. 
and we were never going to be able to solve all the challenges because first time, second resources, uh, then the overall political security situation. So I, I really think that whatever we could achieve was the best at the time because the needs were so huge. I mean, I was in charge of a ministry that rebuilt Kurdistan, so basic needs, shelter, home, water, school, accessibility, uh, clinics. I mean, these are major uh, like needs for survival. Mm -hmm. And we were able to deliver. The, the gap was that we were not able to deliver for everybody who needed. So that's, that's the challenge and that's the struggle. When I have to prioritize which region, which village, which community, which tribe, mm -hmm. How did which you has a, an impact on my, my context. Yeah. I mean, I live in a tribal society. I'm seen as someone who represents certain tribe, certain region. I'm expected to favor. Everybody in position of power are expected to serve their own community. Mm -hmm. So how I managed? I will talk about my own village in the Hook, for example. Destroyed like any other uh, village. But what I tried to do is try to serve all the other villages and keep my village at the end. I still serve it just because, and honestly, we tried to apply some uh, mechanism because the needs were so huge and there is no way we could cover all the needs. So we have to prioritize. So the first thing I did as a head of UN Habitat organization, leading a 20 men engineer, is to sit together and put a criteria. The working environment in Kurdistan in the 90s up to 2003 was much more uh, collaborative, much more um, I guess because the needs were so huge and whatever we were doing was serving the need. Mm -hmm. uh, but we used to communicate. I mean, I used to visit each village and, and communicate personally about why we're doing this, you know? And, and that's why I think there was also public support to our decisions. In Baghdad, it was much more complex because there was, I mean, there is a failure of governance there. I mean. People who are in the elite, political elite, were not interested in, in building the country. Everybody wasn't inter interested in their pie, piece of pie. And that's not my training. That's not my motivation to be involved in government, you know. I joined the government to, 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 to do good and to, to apply all the knowledge I got, systems, policymaking, a very scientific approach to governance. I'm a technocrat by heart. I'm not a politician. I'm a technocrat. I mean, I am both, but I'm more technocrat than politician. So mm. that's why the issue of compromise was never for me. I, I would never compromise. And I had issues in Baghdad. I mean, part of the assassination attempt against my life, because po people wanted to sideline me. They didn't want me in that position. I was in a very powerful position, the Ministry of Municipality, in charge of 15 governorates. And of course, the culture of work is different. The, 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 everything was different in, in uh, Baghdad government, much more challenging. And I was still true to myself and my, the way I want to, to run things. When, where we failed was when there were security issues. And, and there were mean? many, many, many security upheavals. There were a lot of 
fighting among Shias, militias. Mm -hmm. For example, Najaf, uh, for so many uh, months, we couldn't access it to serve them. Fallujah had a problem because of um, Sunni and Shia. So when there was those kind of challenges, we could not. And, and, and that was for us, again, I'm, I'm in charge of a ministry of 45,000 staff. I'm concerned about their security, not to put their lives at risk, mm -hmm. and, uh, and not to put the investment <coughs> at risk. Because there were so many projects that would be built, and after a month or two, they get destroyed or bombed. Because, because at that dynamic, uh, the, the resistance or the dissent was, they didn't want to show this government is successful, failing. So what we did, we tried to avoid those tension areas, but communicated to the leaders that the moment the security will be established, we will come back. And we have come back to Fallujah, to Najaf, to Basra, to Samawa. And uh, so I think uh, what I try to do is always to be transparent and open mm -hmm. and uh, communicate the message to my staff first and to the, to the beneficiary uh, communities. Um, I think the failure was that we were not able to cover all needs, if that is seen. But if you compare it to the resources that were allocated and the conditions, um, we did what we could do, mm -hmm. uh, considering those uh, limitations and restrictions. Well, those limitations and restrictions still exist to a certain extent because, I mean, in the past two years, the humanitarian crisis by the federal Iraqi government has been declared as over. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm curious, I love that you brought up UN Habitat, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, because I'm curious, as someone who has worked in both governments, who has herself been a displaced person. How, what do you think of that decision? What is the motivation behind that decision in your view? And how does it overall make you feel uh, that this humanitarian crisis has been declared over for at least part of the country? Yeah, it's, it's very disappointing because, I mean, if before, before 2003, some of the humanitarian decisions were made based on politics, today we have no reason to make a, a decision that has an impact on a humanitarian condition of people. It's very uh, unfair, it's criminal in my mind. Um, we can't just declare it over when it still exists. People of Singar still can't go back to their places of origin. Christian, Yazidis, uh, other communities who live in Sahel, you know, they can't go back still. So based on what you, you close those. Uh, and of course, uh, if people don't feel safe, they can't return. You can't force them to return. And from my, as you said, I was a displaced person. I was a refugee. Only when I felt safe, I would go back. And that's, that's the natural tendencies for any displaced person. If, if their places of origin were safe, they would have come back. Nobody liked to stay in a camp. So for me, it's very bad uh, decision. It's short, sort, like short-sighted uh, and uh, political. And uh, I would urge all sides that are involved in it is to really uh, be more authentic, be more uh, transparent, but also be more understanding of the local situation. Mm -hmm. Of course, we are faced also with some political issues. Uh, and I, I, I can understand sometimes the international community want to both put pressure on the Iraqi government. And I think there is enough knowledge and understanding of what needs to be done is just the political power uh, and will that need to be in place. 
And that's what the international community need to do, actually. Exercise their power in pushing, in pushing the, uh, the Iraqi government, the political parties, to really push them to work together and mm -hmm. really deal with those issues. Most of the issues are political. And security is a product of political disagreement. And, and we know many examples of that. Um, Iraq is a wealthy country, uh, not in terms of resources and natural resources, but in terms of people, in terms of geography, in terms of topography, in terms of demography. Uh, I mean, people need to be uh, appreciated, celebrated, supported to be who they are, so that being who they are and that diversity can create a whole cycle of economy and creative economy based on the different cultures that exist. And I'm concerned about that issue of diversity in Iraq. I mean, so many people are leaving the country because they feel discriminated, unsafe. And that's for me, uh, as someone who enjoy uh, the diversity of Kurdistan, I, I wish that Iraq uh, can encourage and maintain its people to stay where they are and provide them enough sense of security I mean and that's hard how to I mean if people don't feel safe even if you make all kind of declaration it's on the ground I need to feel safe mm -hmm. I feel safe to leave my house in Kurdistan at 2 a.m. alone driving I don't have the same sense of safety in many of the advanced yeah. worlds for example so that's something you feel it so there's a discrepancy between, you know, how someone feels within a society and, uh, you know, the society's resources and, and capabilities. And, and yeah, I'll, to go back to Iraq being a wealthy country, that is a point that's been brought up uh, multiple times. You know, the GDP last year, uh, the Alp uh, Iraq ranked 48th in the world. Mm -hmm. And in the Global Prosperity Index, it ranks 147 out of 160 countries. Is there an investment in that gap between those two figures being so wide? Is there an investment in that gap being wide here in the government and the people of power here? And do you feel like there's an investment internationally in that instability existing, in the discrepancy between those two uh, figures not being met? I mean, I would argue that any figure in Iraq need to be retested and, and really. I oh, you don't trust the numbers. <laughs> I, I feel like we have a gap. We, mm -hmm. It's in our psychology and DNA. We don't depend on data. So I feel like uh, we have to be sure. We have to be sure that the data that are being announced or published, how true they are, who's conducting them. Pick, I mean, I, I'm a researcher, so I, I try to get all kind of data for my papers. And every time I want to get the basic data about Iraq or Kurdistan, there's always tables that are empty. <laughs> they can't collect the data for certain issues mm -hmm. in certain areas. <clears throat> and I'm sorry, but I, I know there are a lot of data. And, and I love to have more data. I mean, I wish that there are more sites that can do. We don't have a clear picture about our population figure. Yes. I mean, this is the basic thing. You start with population. And I think that's, that's really my, my wish, that we invest on data. Um, look, I mean, we, we could get into that. It, it sounds like this is, can lead to a theoretic, I mean, conspiracy theory. <laughs> oh, I'm just, mood. I'm just curious about your and, position. And, and I, 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 I mean, I don't like conspiracy theory. I still like to feel responsible 
I, I talked about my uh, style being responsible. That's what drives me okay. to do things. So I still want Iraqi governance, politician, people to feel responsible for their okay. for what they are. I, I mean, yeah. I know I know many people would say, oh, but neighbors are interfering. But who's allowing the neighbors to interfere? It's the same Iraqi political elite that is allowing mm -hmm. it, and Kurdish elite uh, for that matter. So I like us to feel responsible and to point to people that everybody is responsible for where we are at. The stronger the nation, the more coherent, I mean, the more collaborative, the more um, together they are, I think the external impact would be lowered. Uh, you have countries that are under embargoes for so many years, but they are very strong economically because there is something strong about the system, about um, sense of ownership, sense of belonging, sense of identity. We have a lot of issues in Iraq, you know, I mean, and definitely we don't have a united vision. Our governments in Baghdad get like <laughs> collapsed and get changed. And then another person, I worked in government, so I've, I, and I know uh, many after me who worked, who came after me. There is a culture of not building up on the previous experiences. There is no institutional memory. Every government tried to start from zero. So that's, mm -hmm. that's waste. Yeah. That's waste of effort, that's waste of money. And, and it's time for Iraq to have a vision. And that is accepted by all. Mm -hmm. I wasn't saying that there's a huge conspiracy uh, mm. to keep Iraq as like an unstable entity in the world. Uh, my point was, uh, speaking to you as someone who's been a refugee, as someone who's come from a lower income family and moved to the upper echelon of this country, have you seen, I mean, the people you've met along that ladder, uh, however invisible and unstable that ladder might be, you've met people along that that benefit from this instability and people yeah. who suffer from it. Yeah. That was the point I was trying to make. Uh, to go back to another And I agree point. with yeah. you. Yeah, and yeah. That's why I, I put the responsibility back to people. Mm -hmm. I mean, we need to do something about yeah. it. Internally, there is room for improvement, a lot of improvement, <laughs> definitely, on governance. Yeah. And I, that means corruption. That means bad decisions, bad policies, bad planning. Mm -hmm. to, to go back to the point that you made, you made uh, point about data that's very you made a point about data uh, and um, uh, to, to tie back to the conversation about displaced people uh, in federal Iraq uh, it's a city planning question but we see an enormous uh, 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 growth in for example cities like Mosul with the ca closing of camps like Hassan Shami and uh, other areas as well and uh, rural communities due to climate change coming in what do these cities need to do to be able to develop healthy, uh, uh, healthy metropolitan areas for all of these people to not end up sidelined and then potentially become, uh, as communities, a problem in the future and have problems affect them disproportionately as well in the future? I mean, I teach participatory planning. Mm -hmm. That's my passion. And that came, and that's my focus, my research focus. And that came out of my experience in government, how centralized the government was and the failure from that centralization. And I thought when we made the regime change, uh, we, when we created this new uh, Iraq based on federal decentralized system, that we will be uh, moving toward a better outcome. Because it starts with, with your 
political system first, what kind of system you are creating in place, and then what support mechanism you are committed to so that people at the end can realize the benefit of it. So I come from a theoretical uh, belief that if, if you follow a decentralized system and if you make the exercise of governance and planning participatory, every city will be wealthy in mm -hmm. its own. Uh, because every city in Iraq has something special to build on. And, uh, and, and, and I, I'm talking about creative way of building your economy, not based on oil, not based on on the traditional uh, ways. Uh, the power of participatory planning is because every community will know the resources, they will know what they need, they know their limitation, and then they will start planning themselves, not someone else sitting in the center uh, designing for them. They will design what they need. And the power of participatory planning also is in prioritization. I think much of the waste in the public spending is because there is no logic for prioritization. You know, you, they invest a huge amount of money on one project when they can just invest on smaller projects in smaller cities and revive the economy there and accelerate the process of development mm -hmm. everywhere. So um, data is needed so that I understand uh, every geography in, in Iraq and in Kurdistan, what do we have? In every ge city there is some certain resources, whether water, whether energy, whether uh, beauty. I mean, there is this whole talk about the Hog being a center of tourism because of its natural beauty. Uh, Erbil can become some center of something else. Suleimaniya can become center of something else. And through that specialization, you are building a whole community and providing jobs. Mm and developing. To talk about one more aspect of uh, participatory government, uh, something that was brought up uh, from one of the questions in the seminar, and I've asked all these questions <laughs> about uh, uh, different generations and governance and, and, and your own background, but I actually haven't any asked any questions about you as a, uh, a woman leader pioneer <laughs> in this country, uh, which is why you're at this university speaking in the first place. But something that you brought up was uh, talking about the quota system. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned that none of the women uh, who voted on the quota system uh, uh, voted in favor of it initially. Um, so I, I, was, I wanted to follow up and ask what, their, what was the reasoning behind that? Why, why didn't the... Uh, why didn't they vote at the time? Okay. Yeah. Well, um, you have to know the background of the governing council. The mm -hmm. governing council was uh, a council of majority men representing different, uh, of course, uh, component of Iraqi society. It was established as the first governing structure to prepare for election after uh, regime change. So we had those people were appointed by the coalition forces, by Bremer, basically. So they were selected and added. They were not elected. Mm -hmm. And um, they thought, okay, we can't have it all men, so let's have women. But only three women. And it was a 25, body of 25. So 22 men and three women. And those women, with all due respect, of course I worked with them, they mean well, mm -hmm. um, but they were brought in the table in connection to their ethnicity, in, uh, in, 
some others recommended them. So in many cases, not only the women, even men, I don't think they had independent opinion in the way they were voting. Right. So uh, they come from a traditional background, uh, Islamic more. Um, I would think maybe uh, that was why. I never went and asked them why. But, uh, but in, any, in any circumstances you tackle related to an issue, whatever table you will sit in, you will always have majority men. And of course, you need to mobilize with both and get as much voting as you can. But you always need to convince the men, <laughs> even if you have enough women on the table, like even if those three women said yes to the quota system and 22 men said no, it will fail. Mm -hmm. So the strategy was to really tackle all. We went and talked to all different groups. And of course, some men voted no, but the majority was for yes, and there was international pressure mm -hmm. too. Uh, the UK consulate was involved, the US was, government was in the beginning against quota system because they thought it will open up the door for all kind of quotas by other communities in Iraq, and they didn't want to allow that in the beginning of Iraq design as a democracy. But at the end, because of the pressure of the grassroots, because it was a movement by grassroots, it wasn't a political movement, Everybody supported it, and uh, and thus this will happen everywhere. You know, women and women uh, positions, and they are also diverse. Uh, you know, uh, in any issue you pick, not all men will have the same opinion on it, and not all women just because it's pro-women they will not. I mean, we have to accept that Iraq political makeup then and even now is very diverse yeah. and people come from different walk of life and they have their own, sometimes they inject their own personal um, opinions or... Um, or Tribal know, affiliation. Yes, <laughs> and uh, some they will follow their political affiliation. Yeah. So it wasn't uh, like, uh, I mean, of course, we would wish that women would support uh, women and uh, but we understand that it was complex they have to also show some personality or character for their supporters and their supporters were conservative islamic so i understand that they had to survive also yeah. in their position by by pleasing well, that's the overall critique of the quota system yes. that still exists to this day, is that yeah. it, what it will end up doing is allow for uh, a system that will end up propagating you know, more tribalism, uh, that will end up not providing any of the solutions to the problems that we ended up discussing. It will end up c continuing and deepening this. I mean, yeah. I worked hard for the quota system. Yeah, yeah. And of course, I, I now feel sad for the outcome of it, yeah. how it has been. It's a, it's a great uh, concept at the time. We meant well to provide the volume. Mm -hmm. If it wasn't there, we wouldn't have that volume of women. Right. And in any experience of trying to get women into the political arena in any country that is transition, you see that they have all adopted quota system because naturally women wouldn't be invited to be part of the political system. So we had to push it even even if it is not effective in the beginning. We wanted the volume to come in and build that culture, build that realization, that, and then build that trust among the society, the voter, the political parties. We have enough qualified women that can play and fill those. Mm -hmm. And then they can also be active politically. So that was important in the beginning. 
of course, the application of it, it was usurped by uh, the dominance of political parties. But nevertheless, I still find it uh, useful. I still find it important to maintain in the transition period. Um, and I think our, our challenge is not only for women's <laughs> role in politics. It's, we have to even question the role of men, the current men in politics. Well, Dr. Barbare, you're very hungry. <laughs> so I'm going to let you go. I wanted to say thank you so much. I have someone waiting and I want to be truthful oh, no, to my I'm commitment. So sorry. <laughs> yes. All right, take care. Thanks again to Dr. Barwari for delaying her lunch to talk to me. Inside Kurdistan is brought to you by the Kurdistan Information Network, and you can check out our podcast on kurdistanin.net. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to us at info at Thanks so much. I'm Aaron Weintraub, and this has been Inside Kurdistan. Thank you.